Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. Gear up with your host, Captain Chris Bush, a trophy trout purist, leader and educator within the fishing community, as he talks about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the speckled truth. Hey everyone, this is Captain Chris. Welcome back to another episode of the Speckle Truth Podcast. So, you're with me today. I don't have any guests. And that's okay because I wanted to take somewhat of a strategic pause since we've been doing this podcast and started, honestly, about two months ago. Maybe two and a half months ago. We've now had about seven guests in the show. We've had seven episodes. It's performing incredibly well. But as we gear up for the holidays, and this should actually release during the Christmas break, I believe, I wanted to take a little bit of a strategic pause, and you kind of got me today. Honestly, these are pretty difficult in terms of labor. I mean, they're pretty labor-intensive getting these done, you know, driving across the Texas coast, shipping microphones back and forth to our uh, folks that do this. Not only that, but then giving them somewhat of like, quote unquote, tech support to kind of participate. And because uh, not everybody, yeah, they're they're remarkable fishermen, but not everybody's great with regards to technology. And so as we ship these microphones, because that's something we don't want to, we don't want to sacrifice is our audio quality, right? And so we want to make sure that the podcast and the time that we have with the people that are on the podcast, it, it's yeah, I mean, it's good, right? We want to make sure that it's good for you, that it's enjoyable to listen to, to learn from. And so we want to portray them in a very quality way. And we want to portray kind of what our message is in that quality way as well. But anyway, so a long story short is I just wanted to take somewhat of a strategic pause from capturing our podcast. But let me say this, though. The I guess after the break and kind of the remainder of the season, we have some remarkable guests. So I'll just kind of come out here with one of the biggest ones is a freaking huge uh, thing. And that is, so I talked to Bruce Ball, Captain Bruce Ball there in Southwest Louisiana. And he was like, yeah, Chris, let's go ahead and do this. Let's go do a podcast. And I'm like, okay, cool. And he's like, why don't you come over here? We'll do it in the back of Paul Brown's house. And Paul will participate. So um, this is actually kind of morphing into somewhat of a like living, living a dream, right? If I could get over there, capture that with Bruce, talk to Captain or Mr. Paul Brown, uh, who's created arguably one of the best trout fishing lures ever. Um, and so that's just one person, right? Mike Blackwood's also in the hopper. Mike McBride, we're going to do again, obviously. We got Captain Brett Sweeney, Captain Ralph Phillips up there in Charleston, Cap Matt, Matt Chipperfield, excuse me, in the Northeast Florida area, Patrick Garmison over there in Alabama, um, Lowell Odom. We got Mr. Eric Botnick from Miralor. So, I mean, these are just ones that I could rattle off my, my head, off the top of my head right now. And, and so we have a lot of really, really remarkable guests. And the, the, the thing I love about these podcasts in general is, and I hope you get this, and get that from the podcast is that, man, these are guys that 
you know, pretty much if they didn't, they have a beginning just like we do, right? They're just kind of like us, how they got into maybe chartering, how they got maybe into lore making. Uh, yeah, that's another one. Ch Captain Chaz Champagne, Mike Bossy, you know, some lore makers. They're going to be in the podcast because I, I think it's awesome for them to tell their story of one, how they took, you know, pursuing a fish and then turn it into a business venture. Right. And then understand kind of the nuts and bolts maybe behind the tackle company and tackle business and tackle world. Things that we use, we kind of maybe somewhat probably take that for granted. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I think we have a really, really, really good uh, second half of the season, quote unquote, uh, for the Speckle Truth podcast. So I'm super stoked. But today I really wanted to focus because I've gotten a lot of questions, right? And so we, when we jumped into this thing, we started with my dad and he was the first guy on the podcast. And so you heard a little bit about kind of me <clears throat> and I don't want it to be about me, but what I want it to be is kind of like, hey, how did truly, man, like how did the speckled truth really start? I mean, for some folks who might just be picking up speckled truth for the first time, for some of the folks that have followed us for a while, I'll kind of want to go back to the the beginning, right? And talk to you guys about how it kind of started, how I got started in the fishing. Um, you know, what are some things that I see, right? So I'm kind of my own personal guest, I guess, to some extent, but uh, but it goes back to Ela. I mean, I'm working, you know, the, the guys are working, you know, everybody's chartering, everybody's gearing up for Christmas again, maybe when this releases. And so that's just a lot of time away from family. And we want to make sure that we're doing this. Actually, as I'm recording this podcast, it's 345 in the morning because honestly, I can't wedge it in anywhere else. And so the only time to do that is when everybody's snoozing, when I can knock it out and still make it a good day at work. And so anyway, all right. So the first thing about me is that again, man, you know, growing up from in the Southeast Louisiana area in Metairie, Metairie, Louisiana. So I'm right there, born and raised and right outside the CBD in New Orleans. And so as you heard, probably talking to my pops is that dude, fishing is a huge deal for us. And so he is a huge outdoorsman. And so there's 10 years that distance my brother and I, and there's 13 years that distance my sister and I. And so he would he was always an outdoorsman, as you probably heard in episode one. And really, when they when I came along, he was, again, kind of a quote unquote later in life baby. And so he had, you know, had all these camps. He had always, you know, fished and hunted in Louisiana Delta. And so when I came along, they just he just got into the automotive industry where he was an auto mechanic. And so a lot of his time, money, energy, effort, and all that stuff was kind of going into that to provide for his family. And so when I kind of came along there, I really didn't kind of know the, the, the same dad, quote unquote, that uh, my brother and my sister did and kind of get to see and live with him in the outdoors that they did when they were growing up again in Cocodry at Pawpaw's Palace. But I guess I was probably like six or seven. When they bought the farm, uh, we call it the farm, and it was in Kiln, Mississippi, and it was a, a 30 acre piece right there in the kiln uh, that actually my uncle used to own. 
And so they had a pond on that daggum thing, dude. And I wore out the path. I just loved it, man. I really was just fixated with fishing from a very, very young age and couldn't get you. I couldn't do it enough. And that was just catching brim literally off the pier um, of our, our, our pond using just straight bread balls and a bobber. I'd catch a bucket full of brim and I'd bring it back. And then so as that evolution progressed, I started, you know, wanting to do more, right? I started throwing a little Zepco 33 on a little red, I never forget a little red uh, rod with a little cork handle, caught my first bass on that. And then my brother eventually, you know, taught me how to fish a spinning reel and cast that. I told that story in the podcast with uh, Doc Bob Weiss. It was a devil source, man. Never forget it. But and uh, so that that natural progression as an angler just kind of kept manifesting itself. And so finally, my dad's like, "Hey, we got to." Or my mom talked him into, "Hey, you got to get this kid a boat." And so we did, right? And so we got the original, get the net. And that's kind of when it really all changed for me because I loved it. He loved it, or kind of re reinstilled that passion in my dad to go back out and start fishing again. And so as we started to go, you have to understand, the followers have to understand that when we launched the boat, it was speckled trout on a brain. I think that's what most people and most anglers in Southeast Louisiana, when they do launch a boat, their first thing that they're thinking about is I need to go catch a limited trout. Everything else is truly secondary. I mean, I'm sure there's, there's some anglers out there that definitely don't think that, but it's, they're in the rare, um, they're in rare company. (laughs) So, and so, you know, getting to do that and in actually doing it somewhat successfully, uh, it, again, it kind of continued to just manifest and manifest. And so eventually he got a camp uh, in what I would consider my home waters, which is happy Jack, Louisiana. So if you're heading down LA 23 from new Orleans, LA 23 will literally be the only road that goes from New Orleans all the way to Venice, Louisiana. And so about maybe, I think it's like 50 or maybe 55 miles up from Venice, from the Delta, you actually have a little town called Port Sulphur, Happy Jack, Louisiana. And so on Martin Lane, there was a camp canal. And so you would drive off, you turn off LA 23, you get onto Martin Lane and we had a camp, 441 Martin Lane called the Knack. And so I've written about that and I've, I love that place. I live down there. I literally live down there. I almost changed my address down there when it was in ROTC at LSU. I almost changed my address down there when they asked me because I, I live down there, man. I loved it. Uh, just because it's, I, I couldn't get enough just like fishing at, at the pond at the farm. And so I owned my own boat when I was like 15 so I bought a little flat boat we called the Mullet Smasher uh, from uh, a guy out of Grand Isle, and I paid $1,500 cash, and my buddy Brandon Treadaway, my best friend Brandon Treadaway, uh, had to basically t- uh, tailgate me home <laughs> just to make sure <laughs> that the damn thing made it home. The freaking trailer tires were wobbling and everything else, and so we kind of got it in shape, and it had a little 92 stroke on it, had a little 55 pound thrust troll motor. That's all I needed, man. And so I got lost literally in a Delta. Uh, as soon as I could drive, um, going down to the camp, 
I would literally get lost. I mean, I would be gone. And so outside of playing baseball, so that's another thing that I really haven't mentioned a whole lot is I played baseball uh, throughout my entire life. I played uh, throughout all of high school and I played at a junior college in New Orleans called Delgado Community College. And that's how I met a lot of my really close angling friends is that they played uh, baseball with me throughout the course, both high school and college. And so, but we would go every chance we could. And so thinking back to those times right now, I'm, I, I think I'm 30. <laughs> I think I'm 30. <laughs> oh God, I'm, I'm old enough now where I can probably start to forget and not feel bad about it to some extent, but uh, but 38 years old. And I think back to those times, man, and how simple it was and, and how awesome it was. And even though I didn't have a whole lot in a bank account, it was enough to buy a couple gallons of gas and go fish Bay Sambwa, you know, in the burn down camps and Bay Sambwa. And that's, I still think I can actually visualize it. One of my favorite trips that I had personally was, God, there's so many, but the one that truly stands out because we're in the fall, we're in kind of December, November, December, it's starting to get those really foggy mornings. That time uh, in Bay Sambo, I woke up crazy foggy by myself and just, I mean, the dew dripping off the camp windows and, you know, we had a sling underneath the camp. The mullet smash was in the sling and I'd go downstairs, I'd hit the switch. It, it basically lowers into the canal crank it up after a couple cranks because it was a 92 stroke 1988 92 stroke so it took a minute it took a minute but but uh once she got purr man she was good to go and so i'd i'd idle down that canal you know there'd be some folks up probably mostly the god fleet nash roberts brad schmidt um mr nash um and so i'd wave them and anyway Foggy is all the world, man. You can barely see your your starboard uh, lights in in your uh, port and starboard lights up front, man. I mean, just this little faint glow. And so, had run this so many times, I freaking knew it like the back of my hand. Basically, straight out Martin's Canal, take a left in Grand Bayou, take a right in Sicola Canal, shoot across Bay Sambwa, and then on the southwest corner, there's a place we call the Burn Down Camps, and it was three camps that were side by side by side that I guess had obviously burned down. Uh, never, They were never up when I was alive. And so my dad would tell me that they were there. And so they were gone. So the only way that they're gone is by virtue of probably either a storm or or them actually burning down. But nonetheless, it left this these remnants of pilings. And on those pilings were just a ton of oyster reefs. And these reefs kind of led from a two-foot ledge to like going down to like maybe five, six foot. And so that water in the fall would come in and out of Bayou Dulac, which is right where it's at on the mouth of Bayou Dulac. And so that was really kind of one of the first places that I started to fish on my own. And I understood it, both how the tide worked, how a bait and presentation would work and kind of lead you to getting bites and being better. So white knuckling it, man, all through. I could barely see the shore, faint glow in the east. You know, just starting to get light, really super foggy, not even shoot, shooting a Q-beam. It just makes it worse. And going across Bay Samuel, I actually just hugged the North Shoreline and it eventually made it to the camps. 
And so I get there. <laughs> I get there. And what you want to do is you want to kind of kill your motor. It is so still. I mean, there ain't a damn lick of wind. And it's just eerie, right? I mean, you have all this fog. You're just socked in. Nobody knows that you exist. Nobody knows you exist out there. And so kill the motor, turn off the lights. I mean, you can hear a pin drop, an absolute pin drop. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually a little on edge at this point because it is so eerily calm. It is so, you don't know if a shrimp boat's coming. You don't know if somebody else is running. I mean, literally, man, it, it is just crazy. Nobody knows you're there. This is the time before cell phones too. So get out there. This is time before GPS. I mean, this is all landmarks. It's kind of funny thinking about it now. I mean, before I'd have just tracked my, my GPS, uh, but now, then it was like literally landmarks, the kind of breadcrumbs to get you there. And uh, I dropped the trolling motor. This is the, this is the funniest part. That's why I'm laughing. Drop the trolling motor into the water. And as soon, so if you know when you drop the trolling motor, it makes a little bit of a sound. Now they obviously have the auto deploy. Uh, but this is back when you actually had to pull the cord and it kind of jumped drops over so i'm trying to be still with it and drop it down pretty light because it is so still holy sheesh man a freaking porpoise like two feet <laughs> two feet to the left comes up and surfaces and sh you know shoots water from the blowhole you know dude i almost passed out it was the scariest moment of my life. I had to lay in a Florida boat. I didn't want to move. I thought this porpoise was going to jump in and eat me, even though they don't even remotely come close to doing that stuff, dude. I was just some sea creature just surfaced right next to me. And I'm going to, this is it. I've met my fate. I'm going to die. <laughs> Obviously that wasn't the case, but, um, got set up, man. And started working a ledge, uh, throwing an H and H, uh, three inch smoke, grub with a at the time it was a quarter ounce chartreuse high tide jig head so it was like a flat standard jig head um i think naughty hooker makes them now or i mean there's a myriad of different i think uh bass assassin made some something similar kind of like an arrow style head but what you would do is you'd kind of anchor or not even anchor you'd keep your troll motor on between these two sets of pilings, you cast up to the bank where one of the, you could see the house foundation used to be and let that tide just bring it right off that ledge. Boop. It was like clockwork, man. You could catch uh, a limit of fish and they were always good. Now here's the nuance with that spot. And here's, this is actually a great segue to kind of speckled truth is because in that spot, in that spot only in the treadway, Garrett Aquispace, who, man, I, I say a little prayer for him. My buddy's hurting right now. He's he's actually uh, had a really bad accident, but one of my great friends. Um, all these guys that used to fit my dad, obviously, all these guys that used to fish with me there, that spot was only good until literally the sun completely came over the horizon. Once it did, the bite kind of just shut down. Why? I have absolutely no idea. Rarely were you able to go there and just catch them and catch them and catch them and catch them into the mid-morning. It was an early morning bite and it would basically shut off. 
The reason I say that is because, and I, and they were pretty nice trout for South Louisiana. They were a nice trout, you know, 16, 18, maybe you get one that's occasionally 19, 20 inches there. Actually, I caught one on bigger fish there when I was really getting started fishing was right there in those camps uh, late spring. It was, she was like right at six pounds uh, on a top dog, but that spot was only good during that time. And so now thinking about that throughout the course of pursuing trophy trout, I think about that area and how nuanced it was with these fish and how particular they wanted and dude there is a huge translation from those fish to big fish they want what they want on their terms when they want it how they want it etc and honestly they want it that way and if it's not they won't touch it you know on the rare occasion you will but you have to be pretty specific you have to be pretty technical you have to understand Again, all these factors with regards to targeting big fish. And that's why I love targeting trophy trout. I mean, I live for that stuff, dude. There are so many things that I've learned about fishing. And there's so much heartbreak. There's so much just about targeting big fish. One of the coolest things. So Michael Salinas, who I just recorded a podcast with, who are editing that. He said it best and it hasn't come out yet. So I'm going to steal it for, from him before <laughs> before it does. And that is, um, dude, it's ugly. Targeting big fish is an ugly process. It is, it is not uh, glamorous in any way, shape, or form. What's glamorous is the actual picture because that fish is just beautiful, right? You see a fish that you would normally not see pictured but now a 27 to 30 plus inch trout, man, that thing just takes on a different life. And so getting a picture of that, it looks so good. But the process, the time, the weather, oh my God, the weather behind everything, um, the time, the, the specifics of that fish and targeting that fish, dude, it's an ugly process. It takes forever to get one bite sometimes. You know, it's just nasty. And that's what I love about it because finally holding that fish, it makes it worthwhile because the picture kind of speaks for itself. It gives you a glimpse into that world. It lets people see what's truly there, what you would think, man, that, that fish, that's not even real. You know, to some people who've never seen a big trout, a trophy trout or whatever it is, man, that thing just doesn't look real. That's kind of what the reaction I get, you know, when you you show some of these folks, uh, some of these big fish, it just doesn't even look, it doesn't even look like a trout, you know, that's what you hear, but sure enough, man, so getting the sea hold, release that fish, that's the difference, and it just kind of continues to manifest itself like it was, you know, catching brim off a pier with a bread ball and a, and a red and white bobber, right, it just keeps going and keeps going, so that's kind of what spawned the speckled truth, is I was, so I'm in my 15th year in the military and obviously got to make it to 20 at this point. And so that's where I'm at right now in my life. But during the speckled truth and how I started, it started in 2013, as you heard probably in a podcast with Captain Kyle Johnson. And honestly, 
it started as a creative outlet for me to kind of feel that connection back to a fishery, something I grew up with, something I missed. And so when I entered the military, I got stationed in Korea for a year and then I was jonesing too, but I caught a lot of bass over there in the uh, peninsula. They have a lot of huge reservoirs. It was awesome. I had my dad ship me a rod and reel, caught a ton of uh, ton of bass in those reservoirs because they honestly don't target them over there. It's actually a trash fish. So it was fun catching a lot of really big bass in those reservoirs. And it kind of scratched the itch for a while. But once I got back, man, it was all systems go back to speckled trout. And so I got stationed in Sumter from Korea, South Carolina, which is outside of Columbia. And I started fishing Charleston, Charleston uh, uh, let's say Isle of Palms, if you will. I started fishing Savannah, Georgia a lot. And so I started just fishing the kind of Georgia or the South Carolina coast a lot. And so that is a huge learning curve there because the tides are so ridiculous. And so there's just so much current normally all the time that it just took a, took a hot minute to really kind of get into it. But I started catching, started kind of finding my way and and figuring out what worked and what didn't being, you know, trying to grow as an angler. And so from there, I moved to Biloxi. I got a chance to work at the schoolhouse there at Keesler. And so I was teaching and I was uh, writing curriculum and all that stuff. And so <clears throat> what I, excuse me. So it was at that point. So I had my charter license or so I had my captain's license. And what I did is. I basically restarted my charter business and I then started. So for Keesler, you get every other Friday off. It's called the CWS work work day, I think, or something like that. But it's every other Friday, everyone has off. So the students don't go to class, the civilians have off. And so the military would kind of follow suit. And so I was able to go and charter during those times. But during the week, during the weekdays, uh, when we weren't in session, so like Fridays when I didn't have a charter or weekends and stuff like that, I would start kind of fishing around the Biloxi Gulf Coast and, and the Mississippi Gulf Coast in general. And so I started kind of learning that particular area. And so there was one time <coughs> my uh, friend Nick Murphy, hopefully he's listening to podcasts, um, we fished a lot together. And so we were fishing and all of a sudden, you know, we were in one area, we caught one big trout. I say big trout is probably like a five pounder. And I remember like, well, that was pretty cool. And so we kind of went and did it again. And it was a different time. And all of a sudden we started, I kind of started immediately seeing a trend there. Like, okay, this area is kind of holding some bigger fish. Why is that the case? And so what I then started to do is we were kind of tapering into fall and we're tapering into fall. Sorry, I had to get some coffee, man. It's early. Tapering into fall, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna wade fish these trout at night in the fall winter time. And so I started doing that. And when I did, I started catching a few really good fish, normally over five pounds, four or five pounds, and then I eventually caught one that was six pounds. And I was like, oh my god! So there's there's some you know, there's something to this. So I started doing it more and more. And I would go that first wading season, I would fish four to five nights a week. 
for the entire year. So that'd be from like really the first of November through the end of March. And I would do that and I'd start to see a pattern. And like seven of the 10 trips, I wouldn't even get a bite, you know, but those three trips I would. And so I'd start figuring out that area. Then I started seeing some comparisons to other areas along the Gulf Coast. And then all of a sudden I started seeing some correlation with tides and time of month and then moon phase. And then all of a sudden sullener started to kind of creep in. And then that's when I started having some greater consistency. And I finally caught my first seven pounder on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, followed by the second and the third in consecutive nights. Then, you know, a myriad of different, you know, fish over six pounds and and five pounds. And I don't say that. It's just, I don't say that to kind of toot my own horn. I say that because when you start putting in the effort and the time and the, and the study and you kind of devote yourself to doing it, it, it ultimately works out, right? My dad always say you reap what you sow and that's the case. And so I started doing that and seeing some success. And so again, once you start seeing some success, it starts manifesting itself. Well, lo and behold, man, the Air Force uh, says, okay, it's time for you and the family to move. And they pushed me over to uh, here, to, to San Antonio, Texas. And this is back in 2013. Yeah, 2013. And so I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? I considered getting out at that point. You know, my family and I, we didn't quite know what to expect. Huge city. Got here. Immediately almost didn't like it. The traffic is absolutely ridiculous here. Um, But honestly, started to fall in love with the city over a course of time. So much to do with the family. Texas is a great state. A lot of pride in in the people that live here, that actual Texas residents. Take care of what they have. Uh, Just great people, man. And so, started making my way down the coast, but man, I tell you, you know, you go from fishing four to five nights a week (laughs) to maybe three times a month, you start to really start jonesing for some speckled trout. And that's when speckled truth inevitably kind of started to take shape is that it was that creative outlet to feel that connection with the fishery, to feel that connection, right? I wanted to start documenting the process of understanding fish and big speckled trout, right? Because these areas in the Mississippi Gulf Coast were just so nuanced. They were just like that spot in Bay Sandwell. These fish wanted it a certain way, a certain time of month, certain moon phase, literally certain tide. It was almost that specific when I started to really dial them in. And so that was the case. And so when I got here to Texas, I'm like, man, I got to start all over. This is crazy. And that's when I met my mentor, Captain Mike McBride. My dad and I decided to go ahead and take a charter with him just to kind of learn an area and just kind of get on the coast. We hadn't seen each other in a while. So we went down to Port Mansfield, had heard a ton about it from Captain Glenn Ellis, who's actually on a cover of Texas Saltwater Fishing Magazine this month with a huge 32-inch fish over 10 pounds. Congrats to my buddy there. But we uh, were actually supposed to go with him, Patrick Martino, and they ended up backing out. We kept, so my dad was already in town. We ended up going with Mike and got to meet Mike and Tricia and fish with him. And then kind of the rest is history at that point. Understood kind of a little bit more about the Texas coast. Got to see it. 
you know, got to then meet Mike McBride and he, I would always, I was already writing Speckle Truth at that point and I told him about it. And so he read what I wrote and I have no idea what the hell he saw, but he saw apparently something. And so he's like, Hey man, I'll, you know, I'll give you my time to help you with kind of that creative writing process and this, that, and the other thing. And so again, kind of the rest is history. So it's been pretty cool to kind of see that now <laughs> throughout the course of my fishing endeavor here, on the Texas coast, it's been awesome because the, when I was here from 13 to 16, I would, the walk-in wade fishing, I didn't have a boat cause I had sold both of my boats. I had a Skeeter 22 Bay and then I had a yellowfin YF 17, a little flats boat that I would uh, fish out of there. I actually had three boats. I had another one. It was actually a little, uh, 16 foot express that I would bebop around the bayous there on the coast of of uh mississippi and so fishing kind of those back areas and stuff like that for for trout and it was fun man that, that little boat smashed them and uh had a little 75 on it that thing was killer and then i used the big boat to run out to the islands and do all that stuff and fish a front beach and stuff like that and then my little yellow fin that's what i chartered out of in louisiana and so had a little operation there what was going on and so i sold all those damn boats and so um yeah. So getting here set up on the Texas coast, you know, I realized quickly that you kind of, for as the, the short duration that the air force is probably going to keep us here, I didn't quite need a boat. And so what I did is I just sold it and kind of started walking wade fishing and then eventually caught my biggest trout ever still to date. And that's my, my 11 pounder, uh, down there in the Corpus area. So, um, it can be, it, it can be very fruitful, to, to say the least, uh, even without a boat here. And so when I then moved to Florida, this is in 2016, I did buy a boat. I had a little Ranger Banshee Extreme, explored the Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River areas down there in Fort Pierce and stuff like that. Awesome, remarkable areas, as you hopefully heard with Dark Doc J. Wright, caught some really, really great fish there, understood that fishery, got the fish, some highly pressured fish, Saw way more big trout than I caught because they're so freaking line shy and it was fun, but <laughs> it was, and then ultimately moving back to San Antonio. So the, the speckle truth is kind of kept going throughout the course of us moving. And again, it's kind of kept that creative outlet. Now, one of the things that I, I didn't really touch on was a conservation piece of that. When I originally started it, it really wasn't focus more so on conservation, but more so on targeting big fish. I'm not going to lie. When I was in Biloxi, I mean, I used to catch and keep a lot. I didn't really truly have a conservation mindset. And it really wasn't until kind of the latter half of when I lived in Biloxi. And it was by the guys of like Glenn Ellis and Patrick Martino and Travis Page that would kind of urge me to consider basically throwing back what I needed. And the reason I didn't do that was because I felt like I had something to prove. And what I did is I would make these catches. I'd post them on, you know, Facebook and social media. I needed, I needed the feedback of our folks in our fishing community of peers, right? Of you guys saying, Chris, it's a great fish. Remarkable. Like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that again. This, that, and the other thing. And that kind of kept feeding an ego. And it honestly, man, like 
I look back and how childish to some extent that was because I don't need that anymore. And I definitely don't need that anymore. There's, I don't really need that kind of self gratification to some extent. I don't need somebody to tell me, Hey, awesome job. I actually relish more now and seeing the anglers, you guys out there catching big fish and, you know, ultimately I'd love for you to release them, but just seeing the, the, the enjoyment, the passion that you guys have for maybe putting so much time, energy, effort, and maybe catching a big fish to then release it. <clears throat> I take probably, I'm probably more excited than you are because I love seeing people do that. I love seeing people set a goal and achieve said goal. And that's the, the great part about it. And so I wasn't that way. I wasn't conservation minded. And, and throughout the course of time, I had, I, I became that way. My, my mindset shifted. It wasn't about me anymore. And that's when it was more about the fish and taking care of a fish. Because honestly, I, I enjoyed catching them so much and seeing these big fish and then watching them. Once you, I released the first one, I'm like, man, that, that felt great. Like not only to catch a big fish, I got to see a huge head shake, you know, a couple strips of drag, you know, now I landed this fish. I got to release it. Let's do it again. I didn't have to, you know, go back and clean a damn thing and wonder who I'm going to give it to and this, that, and the other thing and, or eat it. And all of a sudden it, that kind of mindset starts shifting and, and your mentality starts to shift and you, and you gain a greater appreciation for these fish because you've spent so much time an effort to pursue them that man alive. And and not only that, as you heard, hopefully in doc Weiss's podcast is that some of these fish are truly genetic freaks, right? These 25 inch trout that are reaching 25 inches in two to three years. Holy hell. Like these are the 30 inch fish that these are the future 30 inch trout. These are the future double digit fish that we're going to have in our fishery. And if I was catching and keeping them, 25 plus, you know, five pounders and they're lining ice chest. Hell, that could have been that next 32, 33 incher that somebody's going to catch in a couple years that's just going to be amazing, right? Or shit, hopefully me. <laughs> I'd love to do that, you know? And so when you start kind of having that mindset, that's when it started shifting. And so throughout the course of my writing, throughout the course of Speckle Truth, that idea started to morph. And as we started kind of, quote unquote, growing in popularity, which we're not popular by any stretch of the imagination, but we're just trying to do what we can because I found some like-minded guys like Kyle and Ed and Keith. And then not only that, I found some like-minded anglers that if you're clearly listening to the podcast, you have that mindset is that, shoot, man, like we enjoy this, like let's keep going. Let's, let's use the little platform that we have to then start looking at how we can take care of something that I hold dear. Now I, I drive six hours in a day, one day to fish three hours, maybe four on the Texas coast to hopefully have the chance to hold one of those fish and then ultimately let it go. I'm driving six hours to go catch a fish to let it go. So, I mean, not to say that that's 
a tangible way of showing my love and appreciation for these fish. Dead gummit, man, you're going to put that much time, gas money, you know, all your equipment, this, that, and the other thing. And, and it's time away. It's taxing, man. I mean, a day gone there is, is tough. I get up at two 30. Actually, I leave at two 30, two 45, generally get down there, fish till about 11, 12, depends on what's going on with the major minor, et cetera. And then I drive my butt back and try to get here for like, you know, early afternoon. Hey, guess what? I'm a father of three, man. It's all systems go with these rascals, 10, seven and three. They don't care if you've been up since two 30, they just want to be with their dad and, and do all that stuff. So, okay. It's in the dad mode. And so you finally get to bed like you would normal nights and 10 30, 11 o'clock and you're back at it again, you know, going to work. And so that's kind of what that day looks like, but I do it because I love it. And I do it because I love pursuing these fish, but anyway, but so that's how speckled truth kind of manifests and how it's kind of created this platform, you know, in terms of how we got to encouraging conservation throughout the anglers across the States. And it's cool. It's great to see that simple message and, you know, the take what you need, release the rest. I, I, I've been seeing now in Jay Watkins articles here in Texas saltwater fishing magazine. He now, he now puts at the very end, take what you need and release the rest. I write now for Louisiana sportsmen. I try to do the same thing. I'm starting to see more social media tags where people are actually encouraging people. Hey, you know, awesome that you're taking kind of what you need and, you know, ultimately letting the other ones go. And so these are good, right? So I consider if you looked at the States you know, especially in, in Southeast Louisiana, that mindset doesn't quite exist there, but which let's say if you had, um, a, a map and all of a sudden, let's say it's the state of Louisiana is outlined in black. So the whole thing is like black, right? And towards the Louisiana Delta, you kind of expand on that and it looks a little bit bigger. And so it's black, right? Just the coastline. And all of a sudden you infuse this little white dot in there. And then you got another little white dot over here. And these are folks just encouraging people to kind of take what they need and release the rest. Ultimately that glow will get a little bit bigger and they'll ultimately start to intersect where if we can take what we need and release the rest, we won't need Texas parks and wildlife. We won't need Louisiana department of wildlife and fisheries, hopefully to tell us what we can and can't keep, right? Because we can do it on our, we can do it ourselves. We can have some self-discipline and not see some limit reduction. I don't encourage limit reduction in terms of, you know, doing that i encourage just hey if it's 25 trout per person and a fishery can sustain that then okay keep it at 25 fish per person but let's face it if they don't need to keep that many then don't right and so if you had that kind of simple mentality you now i know not everybody does and so anyway my point is is if you can create you know just these little pockets of people that have a like-minded uh, mindset with regards to fisheries and fisheries management and taking care of a fishery over the course of the coast and over the course of time, ultimately, hopefully that manifests itself into, you know, folks that are very interested in taking care of a resource because they see value. They see something that they love in the fishery and they want to take care of it. And that's not a bad deal. That's not a bad deal. So hopefully we can use whatever we got with regards to speckled truth uh, as, as, as that. So our mission, quote unquote, mission statement is basically, um, 
capturing the experience. So, so it's capture the experience, develop as an angler, and then grow as a sportsman. That is kind of like our mission for Speckled Truth. And so we capture the experience through picture, through imagery, through video that you guys have and submit and, and all, and that we do, right? Cause we're out there alongside you fishing. So we're capturing the experience through that, through social media, folks are liking it, you know, and, and sharing it and stuff like that. And then ultimately, yeah, what was, <laughs> it's early, it's early, uh, develop as an angler. So like the little jerkbait series videos that we've been doing. So the understanding the little nuances there with regards as various jerk baits, you know, and how you can apply them into a certain estuary or a certain area that you're fishing. Um, so we want to develop as an angler because I want you to catch, we want folks to catch and set out that goal and go and catch that giant fish, you know, and then last me is grow as a sportsman. And that just touches on what I just really spent the last five minutes talking about, which is, you know, creating that platform for conservation and, and basically taking what you need and releasing the rest. And so having a better appreciation for your fishery. I'd like to take a small break to sincerely thank our podcast sponsors. As you know, we're a brand about sharing the passion and pursuit of trophy speckled trout, as well as our conservation. Fortunately for us, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky support that same passion, which is evident through the support of this podcast. Simply put, without these brands, none of this will be possible. And we're incredibly appreciative, and we hope you are too. Now, let's get back to the discussion. So Speckle Truth, you know, as we've continued to grow throughout kind of our tenure, so since 2013, you know, doing the boat show was a big deal for us. It's kind of a vision that I had when we started. I wanted to have live fish there, and I know it was a monumental effort. I loved hearing the the perspective of Kyle and Keith on those and how that manifest and how that translated to their own life is pretty funny and how they saw that time but i wanted to do that right and i wanted to kind of continue to share the message and, and grow the message of speckle truth and and kind of what we're what we're about you know and so it's cool because that's i started when i wrote the blog never really figuring that it would really get to that level but when as we continue to grow and understand hey we we can maybe do this and maybe make this a reality, we started to do it. Now, the one thing that I had, and hopefully you heard this in the episode with Kyle, is that I didn't want Speckle Truth to be quote-unquote commercial. What I mean by that is I want it to be pure. I want Speckle Truth, the message, the intent, everything about it to be pure. And so I say that because our industry to some extent isn't right. It, it can be quasi deceiving in terms of marketability and that type of stuff. When I fish tournaments, when I live back in Biloxi, I fish some, you know, IFA events and HT three events and GCCA uh, turned into Louisiana saltwater series, redfish events. And I hate redfish didn't quite maybe have such disdain at the time but hate them. <laughs> and so, 
Um, anyway, my tournament partner and I, we would do it. And I started kind of seeing that kind of back side of the industry with pro staff and understanding all that stuff and wearing a tournament jersey and seeing kind of what that took. And nothing against it. Definitely nothing. Just wasn't for me. And so when I started Speckle Truth, I knew that I didn't want it to be that way. I didn't want it to be a platform for promoting certain brands and products. I didn't want it to be a brand for leverage for those companies to, you know, for me to go, oh, I have Speckle Truth. We have, you know, 15 or 16, 17,000 followers now on, on Facebook. Give me some product. Give me some money, whatever. No. Um, I, I still don't do that. I actually had a guy reach out this past week. He is creating a, or created some, you know, lures or whatever out of, out of, I think the, it's definitely in Florida. I can't remember what side of the coast. I can't remember. But anyway, he started a company called Surreal Lures and he had, Hey man, let me send you some product. You know, I've been following you guys for a while. Let me send you some, absolutely not, dude. Absolutely not. Let me see your product. Talk to me about you. I actually had the guy call me and ask me, or and I asked him a bunch of questions about his product. It sounded pretty interesting. It sounded like a, maybe a little jerk bait that I could use and add to the arsenal with a different uh, nuance that I would like to see, maybe a little wrinkle that these fish in the Texas coast haven't seen. So, okay. Well, how about this, man? Uh, I'm going to buy a couple of them. He's like, what? I'll send them to you, man. It's no big deal. No, dude. I'm going to buy them <laughs> because we make that extra effort to take it and go the extra mile because, <clears throat> and the reason I do that is I want to keep the purity of speckle truth and the message alive, right? If we're talking conservation, if we're talking um, about developing as an angler, the only way you can do that is to truly take off the blinders of brands, right? And I'm probably going to maybe upset some of our some of the product supporters, and I'll talk about that here in a sec, <clears throat> of Speckle Truth, but the brands, right? So we we're not sponsored by absolutely we're not we're not sponsored by anybody. We have zero sponsors, none whatsoever, and we want it that way, right? Because we want the message that you guys are hearing, the critique, the discussion about various lures and how they how they apply. We want that to be unbiased. We want that to be pure. We want that to be truthful, right? We want you to see that without blinders, without any sort of brand affiliation. And that's important because that's how you develop as an angler. A Mega Bass Vision 110 gives you a, a very, very different fishability perspective than a Rappel, a Shadow Rap, or a Miralore L30. It just does. But when you tie and handcuff yourself because you're fishing a said brand because you're on pro staff or whatever it is, you don't really have the fish ability. And then not only that, if you don't catch that fish on that product and then you throw the, the lure in that fish's mouth, that is not cool. That's untruthful. And that is the antithesis of what we're about, man. We're about literally doing what's right, having some purity, sincerity truthfulness to what our message is and not only that to our pursuit because again it's not glamorous it's it's hard it's arduous right and so that's important and we felt that way the entire time and so when we did the the Biloxi boat show you know starting I, I told that story is that you know when Mary Bland was asking us about it 
she was like, what are you selling? You know? And honestly, we had no idea what the hell we were selling. We weren't really selling anything. We had a couple hats and some shirts and that was it. Barely enough to make uh, the booth fees. But we met a lot of people and we talked to a lot of our followers and folks that came to a boat show that had no idea that we were there, really, for lack of better terms, no idea we existed. Um, all of a sudden came away with an appreciation, understood how to tie a loop knot, understood the nuances of a 27 MR and let's say a, a Rapala subwalk, right? We had that level of discussion with openness, with honesty. It wasn't brand specific. And we wanted to keep having that. And we want to continue having that. And we want to keep doing that throughout the course of our tenure with Speckle Truth and, and our platform. Now, as Kyle had alluded to in his podcast, which is great, was that, man, look, as things are starting to kind of take shape, we are having to start having a little bit of capital. And so talking about the dirty 30 product supporters and then not only that but for our, our actual sponsors here for the podcast it's important for you guys to know this because so our product supporters for dirty 30 are donating product to the box because really what they're doing is as they donate the product it their product is going straight to a fisherman's hands through the dirty 30 box um Pictures of big fish are, are pretty popular. And so even though um, that fish isn't necessarily caught on their product, they're still supporting the program. And so if I put a picture on like social media, like Facebook or Instagram, and then still tag them, they still support our program because they're, they're giving us product that actually goes to an angler via a box. And so there's some, you know, there's some ways in which they get some exposure with regards to those tags and stuff like that. But really the biggest thing is they're getting a product into an angler's hands. Now the, the program itself as throughout the course of its tenure, now it's third year. We're on our third year of the dirty 30 program. It's crazy how fast time flies. You know, we're getting this information and we're getting some really good information that we think, you know, and I was talking to Wayne Davis this past week about it, about some of the information that we're getting. And it's not necessarily with regards to Sullener, you know, and moon phase and this, that, and the other thing. What it does is you can't start tracking how well and maybe an estuary is doing if you don't start studying it. And so just the little information that we are getting albeit from, you know, folks and kind of, you know, angler kind of participation through you guys participating in the program. We're getting that and we're starting to see, you know, trends associated with time of year and, and, and fishery. And so if you start to see that and the idea is over the course of time, let's say 10 years, if we see these kind of ebbs and flows in this fishery, we can then start to dissect, hey, what was going on? in this fishery during this year, was there an impact? And until you start collecting that data, you really don't have, um, you don't really have anything. It's all speculation at that point. Other than if you worked for like Texas Parks and Wildlife and Gillnet surveys, which is all available to the public. But honestly, I, I, I like how not only 
we're it's very basic in terms of what we're collecting very very basic but on the same token is it's getting anglers participating in creating a data set you know maybe for the course of the long haul and so that's the importance there and that's why our dirty 30 product supporters are important because there's incentive for the anglers not only with the dirty 30 sticker but there's incentive man like you actually get here's some product rewarding you for your efforts and that's awesome man and so I, I appreciate their support now for like the podcast we do we have what we call quote unquote tier one sponsors sponsors and they sponsor the podcast and that that is again mirror lore texas custom lures original custom quirky and mossy oak fishing and so we're they donate financially to the to this endeavor but here's the deal that ain't going to my pocket. That ain't going to Kyle's or Ed's or anything else. It ain't buying hats or nothing. What that does is it actually buys, you know, our editor and producer, Van Grafton, to produce and edit these. Not only that, it also gives us enough money to operate Dirty 30. And that's important because last year we were mailing out, well, I think we mailed out 90 something boxes. That's $8 in shipping for each one of those. That is, let's say, a dollar fifty a box, and we have a hundred boxes made. And then not only that, you have sticker costs. So really, we're about eleven dollars into a box before it even gets product in there for us to even ship, right? And so it, that's a that's a little bit more of a financial setback to some extent for us. And so now that's what's awesome about those three companies. And that's why I'm greatly appreciative of their support for the dirty 30 uh, program and the podcast, right? We do all this and um, we do all this, man, because we share the passion, just like fishing back in Mississippi, man, on that pier and how catching one brim led to two, catching two led to a bucket catching a bucket led to then fishing for bass and how it continued to just manifest same holds true with speckled truth writing one blog one to 100 one of my first ones i ever wrote one or 100 that was a simple question would you rather catch one uh 10 pound trout or 100 little dinks very interesting to see those responses i can tell you i'd rather catch one because I've seen it and it's remarkable. And even if you haven't necessarily seen a 10 pounder, if you've seen one big fish, you won't want to do anything else. And that's crazy. <clears throat> but we do all this because we love it, man. We love seeing people uh, relish in their achievements. We love talking to people at boat shows and getting to develop a relationship with anglers from literally Virginia all the way to South Texas, knowing people. And it's not to be known. We don't want to be known for damn sure. I mean, I could care less, but I want people to have a place where they can come in a community environment, quote unquote, community environment, and have like-minded individuals that share the same passion, that share the same mindset in terms of targeting big fish and, and keeping what they need. And so that's what all that goes towards and we're just kind of facilitators of that right and so that's what's i don't know it's cool to see speckle truth man grow from 2013 to now 2019 six years how much it has and 
how much of shape it's taken. And honestly, I'm pretty excited for where it's going. I got five more years in the military and I can tell you, I have grandeur plans of doing some really, really, I think awesome things. The problem is I just, for the sake of time, I just don't have it. And oh my God, we can create just so much more content. I'm separated from my boys, man. Kyle and Ed and Keith. Keith lives in Florida. Kyle and Ed live in, you know, Mississippi Gulf Coast and Gulfport, Biloxi area, Ocean Springs. And I live in Texas. So it's really hard for us to collaborate in a lot of things. And so the only times we really get to do that is during the boat show. And so, but boy, you put us all together, we can knock out some stuff and create some really kick-ass content. And that's the intent in the next five years. So, we're, we're going someplace. Um, anyway, we're, we're going to get there. Hopefully, uh, this continues to grow. This this endeavor, I really, it's so fun, man. Having, I mean, uh, never in my wildest dreams would I have <laughs> driven up to Jay Watkins' house, knocked on his door. Chris, what's up, brother? Come on in, man. Uh, okay. Uh, and then sit in Jay Watkins' house and record a podcast and let him tear up and tell a story about him targeting big fish and how it all started, you know, going to Mike's condo there on airport Mansfield, spending the night him with him and Trisha and just kind of chilling. And obviously I've done that over the course of, of knowing them since 2013. But again, just getting a chance to go and meet these people. Mike Salinas, another guy right there in Corpus Christi, a guy who I've followed on social media forever remarkably consistent at catching big fish crashing at his place, man. After the podcast recording it, just, I mean, literally we didn't want to go to sleep because we're just so ate up, man, about talking about big fish and certain areas and, you know, talking about approach and technique and this, that, and the other thing. It's just awesome. So there, there, my encouragement is there are folks out there like us all over. And fortunately through this endeavor, got a chance to do that, man, and kind of live that, quote unquote, live the dream, right? So anyway, all right, let's get to maybe some, (laughs) all the other fishing related stuff, man. I go on a, obviously I try to go in a really great detail on the actual Facebook site. We're getting a website soon. That's one of our big purchases. Upcoming is actual website where we can actually start hosting our own stuff as opposed to relating or relying on Facebook and Facebook algorithms to get it in front of you. That's one thing. We do not boost a post. Facebook hates us (laughs) because we don't boost a post, but fortunately, man, we continue to grow and that's awesome. And so they don't make any money off of us, but they house our, our stuff. And so they try to limit what folks see because they're not getting any sort of revenue from it. But, you know, you guys have been sharing and stuff like that, and we appreciate that. So, and again, it goes back to our, our mission and mindset, which is purity. We want it to be pure. I don't want to have to sponsor any of that stuff or, or boost a post just for likes and shares. No, man, if you like it and share it, that's because it, it resonated with you. Anyway. All right. So go into great detail on a Facebook site and really Instagram to some extent, um, uploading those jerkbait series. We're going to do more of those series over the course of time. The guys are going to do a series of things that they really enjoy doing and are very basic, man. Cell phone, <laughs> in your room, 
you know, talking about it. So I, I, we'd have love to have more on the water catch type stuff. Uh, just not happening, at least for now, just because uh, it's hard, man. It's it's hard. So, but if you want more kind of that fishing stuff in great detail, go to our Facebook site. All right. So for me, fishing related, oh my God, like I, I throw a couple of things. So some of the things that you don't maybe quote unquote know about me is, and I've said quote unquote a lot. I don't know why. I'm sorry. If that's annoyed you throughout the course of this podcast, <laughs> if you see me or whatever, punch me in the face. Uh, maybe maybe don't punch me in the face. Just throw a rock at me or something. I don't know. but um, Or, man, just say, stop doing that. All right. So I'm mindful of that. That's my inner instructor coming out of me. I've, I've known that that's a verbal pause. And so I'll stop doing that, quote unquote. <laughs> All right. So rods and reels that I use, I'm all over the place, to be brutally honest, with reels. So uh, Shimano Corrado K, thrown that lose tournament MB, lose tournament MB. I said that really fast. Um, I like those. I used to be a huge Abu Garcia guy. I used to be a huge Abu Garcia guy. The Gen 2s, the Gen 3s were okay. And then they started to really lack in quality. I mean, the thumb bar would eventually kind of give way. The the anti uh, was the anti braking system or the stopping right. If you're reeling and it stops, that would ultimately give way. So the spool would kind of free spool. Had a myriad of different issues. So I made the switch over to Daiwa. I made the switch over to Daiwa and had the Tatula, a couple of Tatulas, 100 100 H, I think. And then so started throwing those quite a bit. And then uh, recently, I started because I and so I still have those. They're actually still great reels. I don't throw them as much as I used to because I've really fallen in love with the Lose Tournament MB. I really like that little reel. It's small, it's compact, it's light, it's a beast. It's a beast, and it's not honestly. It doesn't break the bank. It's like one twenty nine or whatever it is. And in the Shimano Corrado K, I really like that larger spool, two hundred. Uh, 200 yard spool. I like that. And I have all of my bait casting stuff on Laguna rods. I'm a Laguna rod guy. Um, Terry Wagner, great friend of mine. He's built me a, a, a number of rods as well. I use those too. Um, they're actually, um, well, there are actually a couple of different blanks. And so he used my favorite rod of all time was actually the Castaway Medium Light Waiter Special. It was a 6.5 Castaway Medium Light Waiter Special. I don't even know if Castaway still exists. I think they do. But I hope they make that skeleton Medium Light Waiter Special. I, I love that little rod. But what Terry did is he actually found those blanks and started making them. And he started doing some custom rod builds for me. And I like those. <clears throat> but then I started, I felt a Laguna lattice stick from my buddy, Caleb McCumber, <clears throat> excuse me. And, uh, the Laguna lattice stick has just a great tip. Oh my gosh. It's so limber, but it has, so to speak, and, um, uh, great power in the actual rod itself. But then, uh, the Laguna Texas lightweighter one similar, um, a little bit more power. And then the lightweighter two, which is a lot more power. It's almost like a medium with a little bit faster tip. 
I really like those. And so I've been throwing really lately the lightweighter twos because I throw a lot of my like corkies. Um, I throw, I've been throwing a lot of larger swim baits some glide baits. So I want to have a little bit heavier tip, the light, the medium lightweighter special or Terry's rods. Those were phenomenal jig rods. I used to throw a lot of light, I say light baits, but like, let's say quarter, uh, actually it's five sixteenth ounce was really my favorite weight to three eighth ounce jig heads. When I lived in Mississippi, deep water jigging, some bayous there fishing out the islands. You had a little bit more tide. And so I love the sensitivity of that rod, really light action. I paired it actually with mono. And the reason I did that was because I felt when you're fishing, you know, 10, 15 feet down in the column, when you set that hook, that trout is shaking its head way down there. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of uh, leverage that that fish has. And so the, the given the tip of the rod and then the give a little bit in the actual line itself, uh, I saw <clears throat> hookup to land ratio go way up as opposed to that stiff braid um, all the way down there in connection with your bait when you're setting that hook. Wait, I'm talking 10, 15 foot down there. So, but I've shifted that now. Again, throw more glide baits, more bigger swim baits, corkies, softing XLs, stuff like that. And so I like to throw that lightweighter too. Now, Honestly, I've been throwing a lot more spinning tackle. That's something I never throw a lot of. And so for my spinning rods, I have in I have the Laguna Liquid series, but I don't you I don't throw that as much as I probably should. I like it. It just has too much give. But I've been actually throwing an H2O Express HD series inshore. They don't make them anymore. It's crazy. I should have bought the whole damn rack when they were there because they were on sale at the time. They were like 30 bucks, 40 bucks or something like that. But it was like originally like an $89 rod or something like that. But it's an old graphite kind of rod. One single grip, not a split grip, nothing fancy on a damn thing whatsoever. But it's got uh, at the very end of it, it's got larger guides. And so the very top guide, I think, is a number five. And a reason I like that is because when I reel in my my braid, my I use a uni to uni, not for braid to leader. Uh, I go straight through the guides. And so if you have too small diameter of guides and they have the ceramic insert in there, as, it, as you're making your cast, you can hear, obviously, your line kind of tick, tick, tick through a the uh the guides themselves and so if you have a larger diameter guide you can obviously have some some castability now i like that rod because it has i think the perfect balance in terms of the actual power and the actual give and the actual rod tip itself and so i've been throwing that a lot with these jerk baits god i've been on this huge jerk bait kick for the last really it started last year is really when I started to kind of figure this thing out, especially here in the Texas coast. I threw jerk baits growing up, really, really put them on the back burner for the longest time until I met Eddie Cabler there in um, in Jacksonville. We got to fish there and fish that heavy current, throw those Mirror Lore L30s, caught some big fish there. And so it kind of reinstilled my approach to fishing jerk baits. And so... I was like, okay, how does that transcend now knowing from Florida I was coming back to the Texas coast? How can I take these and throw them on the Texas coast? 
And so I started chucking them. I started chucking them last year, specifically the Shadow Rap Shad and the Shadow Rap, as well as a Rappel of Ripstop. I tried throwing the Mirror Lore L30. It was just too deep. <clears throat> but I started having some success, started catching some really good fish and big fish on them. And so I was like, okay, so this year, this year, this current waiting season, so I don't fish from May to October. I don't do it. I don't fish from May to October. I spend more time with family. I like my fishing season in the cold winter months where it's nasty and just, ugh. Uh, I like targeting those big fish then. I think they're more susceptible to to eating a, something plastic and not not real. But these jerk baits, man, holy smokes. They've been phenomenal. They've been working really well. Got some pictures that I'll share after the waiting season because uh, it's pretty awesome. So uh, I've caught, yeah, some good ones. I'll leave it at that. I'll post after the season. Let's let's just say I got another dirty thirty, um, which is awesome, man. I'm, I'm I'm humbled and blessed to to think about that fish and get a chance to hold her. I did release her, but nonetheless, she is gone. And so, um, did, did take some great pictures, very telling. And so we'll leave that there, but on a jerk bait. And it's been that way for a while now. And I love the fish ability and the nuance going back all the way where I opened the show, talking about that nuance and the burn down camps and base Samba. I've seen nuances in these baits. I've seen nuances in these big fish. I don't get nearly the amount of bites that I used to, you know, driving down on the coast, putting forth all that time, driving and energy, you know, targeting just a few bites. But the few bites I've been getting have been really, really nice. But here's what I've found, though, and this will kind of go back to the rod, is everything I've been sharing in those in that jerkbait series with regards to a scent rate and profile, you know, all the, and how fast it floats back to top, if it floats back at all, uh, how it's floating back, tail up, chin up, all that stuff has been important, really important because the fish that in the areas that I've been fishing, the fish have been telling me that they want that specific ascent profile and ascent rate. Now, again, it's not with the numbers that probably most people would have and feel more comfortable catching, but I'm comfortable knowing that when I catch, or at least I get a hit, it's, it's something, something really good. And so that's, what's been cool about this whole endeavor. And it goes back to that rod, which and rods for my spinning tackle. So I use Actually, I, I use the Shimano Nasi 3001. And in this past year, I've actually um, added to the Arsenal two of the uh, Stratix. And I tell you, that that reel, that Shimano Stratic spinning reel is phenomenal. It's so amazing. And I, I've spent more in the reel, definitely, than I have the rod. The rod has enough sensitivity but it's really about enough give in the actual rod itself to give the action that I want. But also too, if a fish hits, I have enough power to drive those hooks home because I'm fishing nasty, windy conditions, da, 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 da. And so that's why it's important to have, I feel that type of rod doesn't necessarily matter with the brand. It just so happens that brand gives me what I want. 
Now, you know, those fish, when they hit it and that, that reel, I keep my drag really loose to the point where if I'm twitching the bait and I'm twitching with enough emphasis, um, the, the reel is given a little bit of line. So, you know, anyway, but that's been remarkably effective and I'm ate up with the jerk bait bug and I've been digesting as much information as I possibly can on various jerk baits from across the freshwater world. Because I think there's something to be said here in Texas that a lot of anglers just don't throw jerk baits enough. And I'm not saying everybody needs to go out there and throw them. I'm saying everybody needs to go out there and at least consider them regardless of what estuary you are in because they work. They work a lot and they work really well. But certain ones work better than others in certain times and certain situations. And that's that's where I've, I feel like I've stepped up my jerkbait game to some extent because I've now started to see that, right? How long does that pause need to be to give the desired action? And why is that fish responding to that action? And they have. It's crazy. I'll make a wade. I'll wade through an area. You know, I'll start with something. I'll kind of, I'll give it, you know, in terms of a typical wait, I'll, I'll start waiting an area. I'll give it about 10 minutes, if nothing. And I'm fan casting, right? Working different parts of the column, different twitch, you know, cadences and retrieves and pauses and is that and the other thing. And I normally start with a shadow wrap shad because I believe that one's the most versatile of all of them. It dives down deep enough. It fishes fast enough. You can fish it slow enough. You can fit. It's like, it's the corky of, <laughs> of jerk baits. You know, people ask me all the time, what's your favorite lure to fish? Or if you had one lure to fish, what would it be? It'd be a quirky fat boy without a doubt. Uh, because what you can fish it fast, you can fish it slow, you can fish it shallow, you can fish it deep. You know, it gives you that versatility. Baits that give you that versatility are, are, are good. So I'll start there. And then what I'll then do is if nothing, I'll kind of shift up. <clears throat> Just recently, I did that same approach. Boom, started with a shadow wrap shad, nothing. Switched over to a shadow wrap, and it was actually uh, a certain color, believe it or not. And uh, it was kind of a mullet color pattern, and I was working that. All of a sudden, I caught a really good fish, and then I put her back, and then uh, ultimately, actually, it was a 25-inch fish. Went back to the bank, took a quick picture. You know, I want to take document that because I need pictures for my column for Louisiana Sportsman. And so, go back out there. And try to find kind of where I was at in general area. And I just always weighed fish with two rods. And so the other rod actually I had was the Cajun Lures uh, Cocodry Candy is a new color, new bait that I had on a bait cast, working a jig, little 16th ounce. Well, let me just throw this thing for a little bit. So I put the jerk bait up, even after catching that fish, started kind of working around. Boom, caught another 25. I'm like, holy, okay, what, what the hell's going on here? So go back, actually took another picture because, again, I'm trying to get some content for the magazine. And I go back out to the same area, and uh, I'm fishing again with that uh, with the jig, nothing. <clears throat> and so I make the switch. I start throwing a shadow wrap again, nothing. Then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, let me start with the different types of jerk baits. So I'll go to Omega Bass Vision 110, different ascent rate profile, nothing. Go to a H2O Express floating, I think, jerk shad or whatever it is. It just has a really pronounced chin up, floats really quick back to the top. 
but you can twitch it down somewhat deep, but it was in a lighter color. Nothing. Go to a Jackal Rearrange. Nothing. Which has a really distinct wobble. Go to a I'm a Flit. Nothing. Like, well, hell, I go to a Rapple, or uh, not the Rapple Rip Shad, but the uh, Matrix Rip Shad. Smaller profile, works a little shallower, really kind of slower ascent. Nothing. I'm like, well, they've eaten two bites or two baits at this point. Let me go back to um, the jerk bait, that little smoky mullet Rapple Rip Shad. And so I started throwing that. Boom. I mean, within three casts, hook one, 24 inch. Throwback. Boom, catch like within the next five or six casts, I catch three, you know, 17, 18 inches. And so I'm like, oh, okay, they're responding to this. I actually switch back over to a, a shadow wrap in a similar color combination. So not the same, but similar. It had just basically a, a flat black back with the so- silver sides. Nothing. Go back to the damn shadow wrap. I just wanted to see if I was, if I would zoned in on kind of what they were one that wanted to eat on sure enough, man, catch another like 23. And so the rest is history at that point. Again, I'll share those pictures, but it's been that way throughout the course of the fall where it's been that specific, where for some reason that shadow wrap outperformed everything else that day. And it wasn't like they wanted it really, really pronounced pause. They just wanted it. So I share all that because to be that in tune and 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 that lockstep with your tackle and the technique, that's important. That's, you know, people ask, you know, in terms of approach, that's what you need. You know, you need to be kind of to that level of fidelity with your equipment, you know, whether it's a quirky, understanding where that's at in the column, how you're fishing it, whether it's a slick lure, whether it's a top water bait, whether it's a jig. Understanding where that bait's in the column, how you're presenting it, what's going on. Once you get a bite, duplicating that, it's awesome. So, all right. But that's kind of my a rundown of my equipment. Um, again, it's just kind of what I use. I'm very basic. I have a bajillion rods. <laughs> it feels like, but lately it's been those really four that I've been taking. So Shimano Stratic on those H2O Express HD Inshore, which you cannot buy because they're not sold anywhere. I think they discontinued them, which I'm like, ugh. Uh, and a Laguna um, Texas Lightweighter 2 with the Lose Tournament MB, awesome little reel, and then the Shimano Corrado K. So that's me. If I had one bait to throw, I told you, it was definitely the uh, Quirky Fat Boy. All right, so... I don't know where else to go other than I honestly just rounding out the show. It's been about an hour. I can't believe I've actually talked about an hour, especially this early. I've had two cups of coffee. <laughs> what time is it now? It's 513. So I got to go get ready for work, man. But hopefully these podcasts, hopefully you get a little bit better insight in terms of speckle truth and how it all started. Maybe me. Uh, for folks who don't maybe you know know me, why I have started it and why we do kind of what we do and the and honestly the vision and mindset behind it. So hopefully that was helpful. And then not only that, the quote unquote fishing side. Yes, I said it. I said it, but it's okay because it is fishing related. But I just encourage folks to just take the popping cork and shrimp off. 
unless it's truly working for targeting big fish. But if you want to target big fish, you got to fish for big fish. Just start thinking outside the box a little bit and throwing some things that maybe aren't necessarily thrown a whole lot in your estuary or start challenging yourself to throw different things to get a response to from certain fish. And that's when I think things will make a little bit of a change for folks wanting to really kind of get into big trout fishing. So anyway, I'll wrap up the show right there. Huge thanks to our sponsors, Mirror Lore, Texas Custom Lures, and the original Custom Corky, as well as Mossy Oak Fishing for sponsoring our podcast, for supporting Speckle Truth. And honestly, thank you guys for listening to me ramble on about... <laughs> Um, speckle truth and, and really about maybe me to some extent but hopefully this was a good episode again we got some remarkable content that we got from Mike Blackwood again Paul Brown Bruce Baugh uh, Ralph Phillips Patrick Armisen Brett Sweeney Lowell Odom Trisha Whitley I forgot Captain Trisha so we're going to have a female guide legend in the lower Texas coast she's going to be on here we're going to I got to drive my butt down a Port Mansfield, go go see my my guys Mike and Tricia. And uh, anyway, but until next time, guys, thanks for listening. So until next time, take what you need, release the rest, and God bless. Take care.